It's a beautiful day. We, we, the, the, the jet stream is really cooperating with us because the re- air conditioning is still not working in this room, but it's not too bad. So let's say a blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah Amen. This week's Torah portion is called Pinchas. The name, Pinchas. Uh, um, I actually had a, um, uh, a great uncle whose name was Pink. And I didn't know why his name was Pink when I was a kid. His name was Pinchas. Everyone called him Pink. Anyway, uh, we're going to focus on the latter part of this portion, which you can find on page um, 1079. Chapter 27 of the Book of Numbers. Hi, Laura. Hi, John. Grab grab a book and sit wherever you want. Page 1079. Oh, Stu, it was meant to be. This is one of the uncommon and very important portions where women take center stage in the Torah, and really center stage. And so uh, uh, I want to spend time with it today and look at what the traditional commentaries have to say about it, and then we'll see what we have to say about it. So what has happened to date is right before this, in chapter 26, there is another census. Uh, just like at the beginning of the Book of Numbers, which again is why it got that name, Book of Numbers, because of the countings in it. Uh, this counting, interestingly, is a counting of after 40 years. So, presumably, uh, you know, according to the text, only Caleb and Joshua and Moses are still with the group that left Egypt, along with the children under the age of 20 who hadn't been enrolled, you know. Uh, uh, so this is a whole new generation. And there's this counting as they prepare to, and it says in verse 52 on page 1078, And the Eternal One spoke to Moses, saying, Among these shall the land be apportioned as shares, according to the listed name. They're getting ready to, they're on the far side, east side of the Jordan, and they're getting ready to enter the Promised Land, which will not happen, as we know, in the Torah itself, but only after, in the book of Joshua. And in in chapter 27, verse 1, on page 1079, it says, Vatikravna benot Tzolofchad. The daughters of Tzolofchad, son of Hefer, 
son of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menasheh, from the tribe of Menasheh, the son of Joseph. So that's the lineage. Tikravna drew near. Remember that word is very important in the book of Numbers and in Leviticus. To draw near, karov, is to draw near, is a korban, the Hebrew word which translates as an offering or a sacrifice, is a drawing near. So they drew near. And verbs in Torah are important too. The first verb of chapter 27 is vatikravna, they drew near. And Ela Shmot Bonotav, and these were the names of his daughters. Machla, Noah, Chogla, Milka, and Tirta. Verse 2. Vata'amodna, and they stood. So Tikravna, they came forward and they stood. Where? Lifne Moshe, before Moses. Lifne Elazar Hakohen. Elazar Hakohen is Aaron's son because Aaron has now passed away in the, the previous portions. And uh, only Moses is left of that uh, trio of Aaron and Miriam and Moses. Aaron and Miriam have died now. Lifnei Hanesi'im, before the chieftains. And the whole assembly were at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they said, Avinu met Bamidbar, our father died in the wilderness. He was not of the faction of Korach. Remember who Korach was? Korach was the rebel who uh, said, how come you get to be boss, Moses? Um, he was not of that faction, which banded together against Yudhei but died for his own sin, whatever that means. We don't know what that means. He didn't die because of Korach. And he left no sons. Let our father, not our father's name be lost to his clan just because he had no son. Give us a holding. It's the command form. Among our father's kinsmen. So, we know we are dealing with a patriarchal society where all inheritance passed through the males and where women, that's just the way it was, right? Um, until 1960? Isn't that about right? Yeah, until about 1960, that's the way it was. So don't blame the Bible on this one. This seems to cut much more broadly than that. Yeah, I was reading Gail Collins' uh, book on uh, um, the 50 years from 1960 to 2010, or 1958 to 2008. It was like from when a famous case where a woman was arrested for wearing slacks to the office and her husband had to come and speak for her in court. 1958. Really? Really? Wow. When I went to Queens College in New York City, women were not allowed on campus in slacks. That was 1966. Right. Between then, when the woman could not even defend herself, we have to recognize how recent the attempt to create genuine 
equality under the law for women is, okay? Just keep that in mind. Our memories are very short, usually part of our own lifetimes. <laughs> was it shocking that Golda Meir became the, uh, the head of Israel? Well, it was shocking, and, uh, you know, Ben-Gurion then would say, she's, better, she's the best man in my cabinet. That was what he could say, right? So the only way she could do it was by being a man, right? So, um, and that's all still so true. So I'm saying that so that we don't get too knee-jerk in saying what a horrible text. <laughs> Gail Collins ends her book uh, with Hillary Clinton's um, uh, uh, candidacy, which she lost to Barack Obama, but uh, uh, you know she runs the 50 years from when that woman who was a secretary who insisted on wearing slacks couldn't even vo have her own voice in court to a woman presidential candidate. That's how much has changed in our lifetimes. It's worth repeating. Yes, Jay? Yeah, I just want to understand more deeply your perception of this because if you look at the root of the issue, it's, it's this book. The root of the issue in which everything um, became so, I disagree. so ugly, you don't think it's the root of the issue? No, you don't think absolutely it's not. It's just one, one of many roots. Are, is, Gre is Greek civilization a product of this book? Yeah, is Roman civilization a product of this book? And, you know, then, let's say there's 7 billion people in the world. There are 4 billion that follow some version of that. Does patriarchy not exist in Indonesia, India, That's Muslim. China? That's Muslim. No, it is not. Well, Jay, you're not being factual. Indonesia is not Muslim? Indonesia's, Indonesia's patriarchy preceded Islam coming there in the 1500s. India's Islam precedes it coming there. India's, India's patriarchy precedes Islam coming there in the 1500s. China never got to be Islamic or, and they bound women's feet. Uh, no, no, I'm right on all of this, Jay. The patriarchy, the, the, whatever, whatever the roots in our primate society, looking back to our primate friends and relatives that make men rule the roost, the males rule the roost and try to possess the females or our, our uh, four-legged friends or somehow we're not separate from that. We are an, we are an experiment right now because humans for some reason have this capability of altering our social um, structures. We're a current experiment, totally current, in giving women an equal set, uh, an equal access to power as men in our society. The examples of matriarchy are so sparse around the world as to prove the rule. What so about the goddess religions? That is very specious um, uh, scholarship. So they had goddesses. That didn't mean that the women were in charge. Yeah, maybe. I'm telling you, it's like that is all that scholarship, which I devoured in the 70s, was based on a feminist fantasy of some proto-history time when everything was okay. Right? I don't buy it. So I'm sorry, but I have actually a strong opinion about that. I think it's pretty weak scholarship. Well, 
Well, I marched in the first march down Fifth Avenue in 1970. And I'm proud of you. <laughs> so my point is the Bible's part of the entire human spectrum. And uh, yes, we can blame the Bible to a certain... No, no, no. I'm not saying blame the Bible. Yeah. I mean, I could debate this, but I don't want to get, eat up too much time. The Bible definitely reinforces that mentality. Yes, it does. Okay. So let's agree on that. We agree on it. We agree on it. Uh, so what I want to look at today, uh, but, but I'm, I'm reactive because I've heard this stuff, it, the, the stuff that blames the Bible for our current situation of sexism um, is, a, is um, a slippery slope of blaming the Jews for the world's problems. It's like they really mush together. It's really amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are a lot of Christians who want to own Jesus as a femin the first feminist. Right? We're always doing that to history. It doesn't work that way. In the marriage ceremony, just as we look, men look to Jesus, the woman has to look to her husband. I, I was at a Chinese couple of my students, and that was said in the thing. I guess they got it from the Christian Bible. Sure, sure. So, what, so, a, oh, I'm sorry. so, it, it, uh, let it let it go for now. Okay, let it go. Um, so, um, I want to disarm us a little bit so we can encounter the text without uh, um, saying too much reactivity. without too much reactivity. <laughs> and um, it's amazing to me to consider that it's really just the product of the last fifty five years or fifty five years or so that women have even. It's even been considered that we should change the laws so women can have inheritances, so that women can have. So um, it's amazing to me. And that's just in this country. And that's just in this country. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, all over the world, women are still treated as um, uh, uh, property and chattel in so many places. Before 1960, what if a man just had daughters? Then how do we leave them? I'm not an expert in the law. I'm sure there was a way to do it. Um, uh, but it wasn't equal before the law. Yeah. I, my uh, family was a I, Janve, and sons. He had three sons and three daughters. So it was I, Janve, and sons, and the daughters were... The daughters were doing the daughter's job. In other words, the daughter's job in... Now, now... Um, Patriarchal societies are not necessarily demeaning to women. All they have, and still all over the world, are strict, div strictly divided gender roles and um, uh, venues. The domestic sphere behind the door of the home was the women's domain. The public sphere, the male domain. It's still all over the world. And uh, yes, Shana. Right. Not necessarily alongside their husbands. One of, I'm yes. very proud of that. One of the interesting features of Jewish society in the, from over the last 2,000 years, we know a fair amount about it from the Middle Ages, from documentation, is that because the masculine ideal in Judaism was to be a Talmud Chacham, was to study and to learn and to be a scholar, 
somebody had to earn a living. It's very interesting. We have records from the Cairo Geniza in the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries where women, Jewish women were business owners, signed contracts, uh, managed affairs, because their husbands, the ideal was to support them so they could study. It's so actually... Still an in, done. Huh, oh, it's still done, absolutely. So it's actually, when you think about the, the nuances of, of gender roles in the Jewish world, because of the idealized male as a scholar, women have been very engaged in business world and in the world of doing. So they raised the children, took care of the home, and did the business yeah. thing? You betcha. Oh. Superwoman, we invented it. <laughs> yeah, just like now, yeah. What about literacy? Am I, am I incorrect in thinking that Jewish girls had been trained to read? It is also correct that because of Jewish values, Jewish women and girls were literate. And this and had a had an incredibly higher rate of literacy than anywhere else in the any other societies. That's, that fascinates me. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, they didn't necessarily learn how to study Torah. So often their their language was Yiddish, and we have prayer books called Tachinus that contain Yiddish prayers written by women or written for women. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, but they were yes, women were literate. They just weren't learned in. Torah, uh, that was the men's domain. Um, but they were, they were literate. So it's interesting that Jewish values did give women some purchase in both literacy and in uh, uh, the affairs of the world. That is really true. It's very interesting. It, it also, um, in, in the whole issue of literacy and uh, the Common Core and all the educational movements that have rolled over during my lifetime, Jews, Jewish children always come to the top, and I think that that is rooted in the tradition of literacy. Oh, I agree with that. Uh, because Judaism elevated education and learnedness to be the highest cultural value, um, uh, then when we were liberated from the ghetto, we were primed to succeed in the, uh, in the larger world. Absolutely primed. And I'd say, you know, in another sense, We've also been selecting for it because the, the wealthy merchant family in town would want their daughter to marry a scholar, right, so that they could support him in his studies. So that meant that uh, there, was also, there was definitely a selection process going on that, that, that made those characteristics and that ability rewarded uh, in, Jewish, in Jewish society. It's fascinating, isn't it? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad about it. I, I like my legacy of, um, of, of, of wanting to learn and, and uh, caring about it so much. So, uh, so here's this passage where, unusually, uh, five women step forward in front of the tent of meeting and declare, give us a land holding. This doesn't happen anywhere else in the Torah. So it kind of calls out. Here's what happens. <laughs> Verse 5, And Moses brought their case near to God. <clears throat> Moses doesn't know the answer because it's unprecedented. Uh, and God said to Moses, Ken benot dovrot. The, the daughters of Slavchad speak well. 
Ken Dovrot, they speak rightly. It's a lovely phrase. It's very affirmative. That's God. So it's a big phrase. How have the children of Israel generally been speaking over the course of the book of Numbers? Whining. Whining, <laughs> complaining, rebelling. And what does God usually say? How long? How long? Right? And here, when have you heard God say anything like this about the children of Israel? I, I'm struck by it. And of course, the traditional commentators are struck by it too. Wow, God says to them, right on, girls. <laughs> because Ken, Ken, remember, Ken means yes. Konen, which is related to Ken, uh, means established, firm, true. Yes means all of those things. Yes means established. For they speak truthfully, groundedly, rightly. It's really a great phrase, which you don't hear God say anywhere else. I don't think in the Torah. Um, uh, they, so, Ken benot dovrot, natun titen, give them, give them a land holding amongst their brethren and uh, their father's kin. Vehaavarta et nachalat avihen lahen. And transfer the their father's share to them. The word ha'avarta is strong too. La'avor is to cross over. Um, and so there's some transition happening here. The ha'avarta, because the, and then let's keep saying what it says. Now God fills out the case law further. So it's not like this is a feminist revolution. So further, speak to the Israelite people as follows. If a man dies without leaving a son, you shall transfer his property to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall assign his property to his brothers. But the daughter is second. If he has no brothers, you shall assign his property to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, I'm on the next page, you shall assign his property to his nearest relative in his own clan who shall inherit it. It's very important in the Torah that the landholding stay within the clan. This shall be the law of procedure for the children of Israel in accordance with the Eternal's command to Moses. So that, yes? So what happens when, are these five daughters mentioned again ever? Yes. Um, and I wanted to show you where they're mentioned again because... Because if they marry and join another clan, then what happens? Wow, you should be a lawyer. <laughs> if you look at page 1127. Now, what I want to point out, it's chapter 36 of the book of Numbers, 1127. This is the other place where the daughters of Slovchad turn up. And, they ask, and the, their relatives ask this very question. Um, the family heads in the clan of the descendants of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, of Joseph, came forward and appealed to Moses and the chieftains and the family heads of the children of Israel. And they said, 
The Eternal commanded my Lord to assign the land to the Israelites as shares by lot. And my Lord was further commanded by the Eternal to assign the share of our kinsman Slofchad to his daughters. Now, if they marry persons from another Israelite tribe, their share will be cut off from our ancestral portion because, once, because the rules are she becomes part of her husband's household. Right? That's the way it was then. Um, now, if they marry persons from another, cut off and be added to the portion of the tribe into which they married, thus our allotted portion will be diminished. And even when the Israelites observe the Jubilee year, that's when, the Jubilee is when, on the 50th year, anyone who has lost their land due to debt or indenturedness or misfortune, their land is restored to them so that every clan can get a fresh start. Even in the Jubilee year, their share will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry and their share will be cut off from the ancestral portion of our tribe. So Moses, at the Eternal's bidding, instructed the Israelites, saying, The plea of the Joseph tribe is just. This is what the Eternal has commanded concerning the daughters of Slovchad. They may marry anyone they wish, provided they marry into a clan of their father's tribe. This is apparently, for the ancient Israel, a crucial feature that each tribe not sacrifice its land holding. No, because it says you cannot sell the land into perpetuity. It's mine, says the Lord. So they have to fulfill that plan. No inheritance of the Israelite may pass over from one tribe to another, but the Israelites, each of them, must remain bound to the ancestral portion of their tribe. Every daughter among the Israelite tribes who inherits a share must marry someone from a clan of her father's tribe in order that every Israelite may keep an ancestral share. Thus no inheritance shall pass over from one tribe to another, but the Israelite tribes shall remain bound each to its portion. So that concludes the case law here. We're not in a situation where women can uh, hold the claim to the land. They have to marry, and they have, but they can inherit if there are no sons. Bob? disappeared from my mind, I'm sorry. Okay. uh, um, Did they ever interpret this? uh, This means they marry cousins. Yes. Second, third, fourth, but cousins. Yes. That's not a problem for the Torah. For the Torah. Yeah. Or for the Orthodox. Uh, No, it's uh, tightened up since then. The rules, yeah. Uh, Because also in in the Torah, you can have more than one wife. That, uh, that's changed in the Middle Ages. All kinds of things. All kinds of things have changed with changing social circumstances. But in the, in the, econo- in the, in the relationships of the Torah, uh, it's clearly defined in Leviticus what's considered an incestuous relationship and what's not. Yeah. Yes? My grandparents were cousins. Yeah. We yeah. always say that's why the family's a little... Oh. <laughs> not quite right, but that was very common. Yeah, my great-grandparents were cousins in the early 20th century. Still, mm mm-hmm. Yeah, very common that people, and not just among Jews, but in the general population. Yeah, that is true. That's true. Cousins married to cousins. But so what happened to these land holdings as there were, through the generations, more and more, only the oldest son inherited? Or the oldest sons had to share it? In the Torah... The oldest son inherited. 
and the younger sons were in a very difficult position. Um, and that gets reflected in the book of Judges when there appear to be these um, bands of, again, we're primates, right? Uh, I, when I was in Utah just now, there was a buffalo herd at the place I was staying. And there was, there was one big male and a lot of females. And what do the other boys do? You know, so, yeah, uh, that's the way it was. What do they do? Well, um, are you, you talking bison or people? <laughs> well, I'm saying we're all in the same boat to a certain degree. If that's how we're going to run, you know, if we're going to follow that that kind of um, uh, natural uh, I have an answer. situation. I have a what are all the, uh, they run for president as Republicans. So <laughs> that, that's the answer. Um, very, it couldn't be more biblical. Jerome? I think the only problem with cousins is first cousins. Once they go beyond the first cousin, uh, it doesn't seem to matter that much from what I read. Okay. Now, what the point I want to make here... Well, we weren't done with the buffaloes, I thought. Oh, the buffaloes. What do the other... Well, um, apparently they get turned into hamburger, to, to <laughs> buffalo burger, a lot of them, yeah. because they are now domesticated. What used to happen? Well... We've all watched lots of nature documentaries. They fight for to be the alpha male. They fight to be the alpha male. In every animal grouping like that, and if they lose, they go off and do the best they can. They do the best they can. They don't get to have a lot of a, a harem. They don't get to have a you know a bunch of a whole bunch of females to inseminate and it makes the stronger animals to somehow survive those genes yeah it's a selection it's selection i understand mm -hmm. i understand uh we humans you know the way the torah says it is that we're different than the other creatures and again i don't mean that in like a hard and fast line in that we have the capacity uh to be aware of this these behaviors and potentially to alter them um, it's kind of, it, it's great being a human being that way. We're not, you know, our nature is to not be completely beholden to our inherited nature, right? That's what's cool about this part of the um, um, evolutionary tree. Uh, and uh, it's fascinating to me, totally fascinating. What, what I want to point out here is that if you look now, it says, the daughters of Tzlofchad did as the Eternal had commanded Moses. Which page are you? Page 1128. Oh. <clears throat> 1128. At the top, go on. Right, we just read about this. And now we're at the end of the book of Numbers. That's significant. Endings are significant. The daughters of Tzlofchad did as the Eternal had commanded Moses. They're named again. Machla, Tirza, Hogla, Milka, and Noah. Tzolofchad's daughters were married to sons of their uncles. So, whatever. We, you know, B'nai Dodim doesn't necessarily mean sons of uncles. It could mean cousins. Marrying into clans of descendants of Menashe, son of Yosef, and so their share remained in the tribe of their father's clan. And here is the, po the, the, the closing line. And these are the commandments and regulations that the Eternal enjoined upon the Israelites through Moses on the steps of Moab, at the Jordan near Jericho. End of book.
I think it's fascinating that the daughters of Slavchad make another appearance as the closing feature of the entire book of Numbers. Forty years have gone by. And so, in the Jewish way, this cries out for interpretation. Right? Uh, what, what, what about, so the, the traditional commentators want to ask, what about the daughters of Tzalofchad merit their being named and concluding the entire book of Numbers on the banks of the Jordan across from Jericho? Uh, that's a good question. And I, have, I, brought, I brought some um, source material to share with you. Uh, but I wondered if anyone has any uh, thoughts off the, uh, uh, that are coming up for you. Stories, yes. Oh, well, I was just thinking they ended up doing what they were told to do. They married their uncles, so they kept all the money in the family. They ended up doing what they were told to do, so but, radical. well, except they were the ones who stepped forward in the first place in this week's portion. They came near, they stepped forward, and they said, give us a holding. So then they went ahead and participated. Yes, our feminist sensibilities aren't going to be satisfied here. <laughs> However. Well, I disagree. Well, I, you know, they just, they, they did what their father said. You know, it's like, but go ahead, disagree. Well, I think feminism is, is about um, <clears throat> saying what you want and making your own choices. And that's what they did. They said what they wanted, and they were told, this is what we want you to do, and they, t they chose to do it. That doesn't make Yeah, but their range of choices were, were much more limited. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Their range of, but, of choices are But they had autonomy. But they were really limited. But they pushed the limits of their autonomy. Yes, Shana? I think that the, uh, the overriding main idea of this whole thing is that every tribe should end up with an equal share of land. That is correct. Regardless of gender. Mm -hmm. which is an important element here. Um, but they asked what they, for what they wanted, and they got it. Meaning women, Jewish women, have been chutzpahdik for a long time. Mm -hmm. Yes, these are original chutzpahdik uh, Jewish women, that's right. Um, but in a sense, you could read it as activism and assertiveness, not revolution. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Activist and as activism and assertiveness. Nice words. Nice yeah, words. Not, uh, re not rebellious. Not rebellious. Mm -hmm. Working within the system because that's their only conception. Yes, Rob. I see it sort of like Nakshon. You know, they're sort of taking that first step and um, asserting themselves. And the reason that they are the, conclude, the conclusion is because they, they did it. You know, they spoke up for women, and that wants to be memorialized in the, in the book. This is a passage, number one, and I want to take this in a few directions, which can be one of the foundation texts for our, our current desire to uh, make sure women have the right to as much right and not just right, but uh, um, sense of entitlement uh, to speak up as men do. Absolutely. That's, a, that's one, one reading of this portion. There are many. There are many. Jerome? It says the daughters were married to. Now that could be interpreted as uh, an uncle or something saying, "You marry this man and you marry that man." That's right. 
doesn't say they married. It says they were married too. That's right. So it, it, it indicates that they were directed to marry those people. Yes. Again, go back before uh, West Side Story. Okay? I mean, it's like... I'm not saying, yeah, but I mean, that's, that seems to be the way it works. Yes, that's the way it was. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's the way it was in uh, 600 BCE, and that's the way it was in 1945, and that's the way it still is in India, in most places and around the world. Yes. Uh, Susan. So that's the way it was, but what's significant to me, it's important what it means to us now, but why would they choose to put this in? That's With the all next. All of the stuff going on. Right. What what's going on that all of a sudden they're in touch with their feminine sides? That's the next question. Uh, let me hear what Jazz has to say, and then I want to take yeah. it in that direction. Well, well, you know, I think this feminist side. Uh, if, if we could take it a little different angle. Here. Yes, please. Okay. So I try and interpret this as as the Torah, not so much as this legal case and facts, but more as a metaphor for our own spiritual right. Thing. So right. this fits into that metaphor. The feminine side is very important for that spiritual enlightenment. I mean, I mean. Uh huh. And what would you say is the feminine archetype, the feminine side? How would you describe it, Jay? Well, that's an interesting question. I think that it's it's definitely not physical. Of course, physical is 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 you know. Is Bruce Jenner? Right. Well, we live in a moment. We live in a moment where masculine and feminine are, are it's like we're going to have to be thinking in more. Fluid. It's getting very fluid here, so let's, we all have a masculine side and we all have a feminine side. Exactly right. It's, it's an emotional approach and it's a psychological approach. A I'm, we're going there, Jay. Keep going. Perceptions yep. of, of the world. And, 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 and I try not to get caught up in that kind of, this is feminine movie or this is a masculine movie. I just, because there are a lot of females that have masculine properties, a lot of males that have female properties, without a doubt, and I think if we get up into defining people by their sexual organs, which, which, which um, we get hung up in these stereotypes that in my mind make no sense. I try and approach the world, actually, that there are, I, when I was 13, I read an article in a magazine, and it resonates as time goes by. There are nine sexes. Not two male and female. Oh, that's cool. You read that when you were 13? 13 in a magazine. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it resonated then. Mm -hmm. and, and as time goes by, it still resonates. Because if you take a matrix of physical, emotional, and psychological, just, just as a star. Right, and it's a field. Three in... by three, and you could have feminine, emotional, you know, somewhere in between psychological, um, even if you, if you follow his logic, if you look at Jenna. You know, he, 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 there's no, I think you get into problems even on a spiritual journey. Yeah. If you, if you divide the world, female, male. Nicely and put. I think, and I think we all have both sides. We need to recognize that. And that's the way you're going to make it to the process. Thank you. So as most of you know, remember your thoughts. Okay. As most of you know, I am, and we, because I, I lead this sort of where it goes, are profoundly interested in reading the Torah in that light, right, as a spiritual journey, uh, and so these, Jay's comments are very pertinent. I also wanted to first address it on its plain meaning, and then go there. Yeah. So Doug and then Susan. I was just going to say, it, it just shows how difficult it must have been 
find the toilet. And it hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll need nine bathrooms. Okay. You just have to have better etiquette. Okay, so Susan, before you comment, repeat what you said before Jay's comment. It was. Uh, okay, so I can't remember, but I think I said that it's good how it affects us now, but why then? with all of this patriarchy going on, mm -hmm. would they have chosen to include this the way they did? Mm -hmm. And for me, it is the spiritual journey of the Shekhinah. I think it's giving some kind of, I don't know, to the, the Shekhinah, which, and, and you talked about Israel, I remember you saying something as some kind of marriage or union yes. or feminine, yeah. It feels maybe like it's it's connected in that way in terms of the spiritual journey of it. It's not a gender issue. Mm -hmm. It never was a gender issue, spiritually. It is in terms of practicality and how we view things. Mm -hmm. But then... So, yes, um, Mary Douglas, in her book on Leviticus and Numbers, she's, uh, she passed away, but she was this anthropologist who wrote... Bible criticism, her feeling is that any time there are so few n women who are named uh, episodes that focus on women, and they come kind of, they feel kind of random when they come up, like uh, when, you, when you study the legal texts. It's not like here's a whole section of laws about women. It's, it's just, uh, that uh, women are when a, a woman is named and is a sim is is a symbolic presence. Her thesis is that when women appear, they represent Israel as the bride, the betrothed of God. Um, uh, that's an interesting. Yes, that's a really interesting way to look at. That's an interesting way to look at it. Um, uh, the rabbis when they encounter all the incidents where the children of Israel who are listed in the census, they're all men, right? So here, let me read you something. Mary Douglas? No, no, I'm much older. <laughs> it's Hebrew. Um, uh, let's see, what do I want to get to first here? I, I, could, I didn't have the translation of this. I wanted you to, so I'll translate it for you. Um, but let's see what this says. Davar This is from uh, the Midrash. Um... Ah, I remember. Okay. So, over and over, the rabbis hold up the Israelite women as being righteous and keeping the faith. And the daughters of Tzlovchad become the mm, epitome, the climax of that, when they say, give us the land. What have the children of Israel said endlessly for 40 years? 
We want to go back to Egypt. We don't want to go. We don't want to go. The rabbis assign that quality to the men. It's very interesting. And they repeatedly assign the qualities of keeping the faith and of believing and of wanting to move forward to the women. They start with Miriam. And so this is a narrative that's not in the Torah, but is absolutely center in the uh, rabbinic take on it. So uh, when, Miri- when they begin with Miriam, it says that Moses' parents um, uh, um, oh, in the beginning of Exodus, I'm not going to quote it right. Anyway, they interpret the verse about how Moses' parents, uh, uh, that they had, the, that the father, after the decree, that Amram, after the decree, um, that baby boys were going to be thrown in the Nile, went out with a leader and took all the men, and this is all Midrash, everybody, took all the men, and they left their wives, and they slept out in the fields. So they wouldn't conceive children. They became celibate. And it even says that he divorced his wife. And Miriam, who was already born, uh, is given the role of going out along with the women to the field and enticing the husbands to come back in and sleep with them. So the rabbis say this is the faithfulness of the women in choosing life over and over again, just as the Hebrew midwives are choosing to continue to deliver babies. So women represent, in that sense, the principle of life, desiring, sexual desire, all of that. And then they take that further, and they say that when it was time to build the Mishkan in the wilderness, and Moses asked everyone to bring, um, well, no, before that, with the golden calf, it says that, and the men brought their wives nose rings and earrings. And the midrashes, because the women said, I'm not giving you my jewelry. And in the midrash, the men break off the women's jewelry to give it to Aaron. So again, the text doesn't say that, right? But there's this narrative about the women being faithful to God, trusting and wanting life and wanting to go forward. Bob? When did that interpretation become uh, when, when are you referencing what dates are you referencing um, classic ages no no what? earlier classic rabbinic midrash so we're talking about 2000 years ago yeah. in those centuries in there stuff that's all in the Mishnah and the Talmud including the um, specifics about the men tearing off the nose yeah, yeah. So how does that fit with the image of the women as being the faithful ones the women were refusing. This is not for the Mishkan. This is for the golden calf. Oh, for the golden calf. I, sorry, I went back. I forgot one episode. Then, it's time to build the Mishkan. And then they, then they. Right, and then the women give freely until they. Ha- Moses says, "Stop! You're giving too much." Specifically, they give copper 
that they had used, and this is the crazy midrash you might remember. So how did they entice the men? They made mirrors. Their mirrors weren't made of glass. Their mirrors were made of polished metal. And they would look in the mirror with their husbands and say, look how beautiful I am. Look how beautiful you are. It says that they gave those mirrors for the construction of the copper washing basin in the Mishkan. Talk about nice layered psychological readings of things, right? So the place which is supposed to be most holy to God, the washing for the rabbis, the place where you would cleanse yourself for it, is the, is the place of desire for, and that the women preserved and then took with them out of Egypt and then gave to the sanctuary. So what I'm hearing in my own speaking, this is what I'm hearing, and I've read it elsewhere, but I haven't heard it quite so clearly before, is that the, female, the feminine principle represents desire for God, desire for life, sexual aliveness, fertility, um, and it's all, and the women never lose their relationship to God, whereas the men are continuously losing it. Uh, so, so again, the women represent maybe the idealized, for the rabbis, the idealized form of, of, of the children of Israel. So the next thing that happens um, and then Miriam, of course, is responsible for the water that travels through the wilderness. And um, way back at the beginning uh, in, in Genesis, someone named, a woman named Serach, the daughter of Asher, oh, yeah. is responsible for uh, remembering. She's the only person in the Midrash who goes, she's named, again, a woman who's named as one of the 70 who go down to Egypt into slavery. And the rabbis say that she was the only one who, who lived until it was time to be, leave with the Exodus and that she was the keeper of the memory of the promised land. 230 years, 400 years. Hey, it's a story. I know. Yeah. I know. And that she was so old that when they approach her and say, do you remember? Because she's like the crone. She's like the old lady in the Midrash who's the ancient one who's been there since they came down to slavery. She says, P I remember the P, P sound, Pakod. God will notice us. I remember. And, and that wakes the people up that even after all those years of, of somnolence and deadness and slavery, it's that, so it's very interesting in, in these midrashim how it's, the, it's a named female who carries the promise forward to this denouement, to this moment where the daughters of Slavchad, in their faithfulness um, and in their desire and in their being able to believe that it's possible, do what the scouts couldn't do, which is say, who's going? So who's entering the land? <coughs> Caleb, <coughs> Joshua, and the women. It's fascinating to me. Uh, 
now, so here's how the rabbis say it. Uh, let's see. Um, I think I'm going to have to read the Hebrew and translate it to you. Thank you. Yes. yes. Um, oh, here's a midrash that I didn't have t- time to find the Hebrew on. These women rose up in the generation of the wilderness and merited to take the reward of all of them. This teaches you at what moment they stood before Moses. At the moment that Israel was saying, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Moses said, but Israel's demanding to return to Egypt, the Israelites, and you demand an inheritance in the land. They answered, we know that in the end, all Israel will claim their share in the land. As it is said, I'm not going to read that. Don't read it like this. Uh, this is too hard to unpack. But then the Midrash says, quotes Hillel and says, where there is no man, try to be a man. I'm not going to be able to... I'm not going to be able to do that one, but it's like they are really playing with the gender stuff. So here's what it says in Midrash Tanchuma. The daughters of Tzlovchad approached. This generation of women embraced and uh, what the men had blown, blown off. Sheken et at motsesha amar lahem aharon perkunis me hazahav, just like when Aaron uh, said to the men, "Take off your nose rings of gold." Veloratu hanashim v'mitu v'michub v'alehen, and the women refused to give them to the men. Shenemar v'it parku kol ha'am, as it said, and then the, the men broke off the nose rings. V'nashim lo nishtatfu b'maseh ha'egel. The women did not participate in the worship of the golden calf, according to this midrash. And then the scouts who came back and slandered the land, and complained about it, they were decreed, you shall not go up to the land. But the women did not join in their council. Because God said, You shall surely drop dead in the wilderness, and not a single man shall be left. Now, usually, of course, in the language of the Bible, man means person. But they're doing this very tendentious reading of it. Um, Ish uh, velo isha, man, but it didn't say woman. Alma Why? Because it was the men who didn't want to enter the land. Aval hanashim. But the women, kirvu atzman levakesh nachala, approached in order to request a holding. So this is the Midrash explicitly elevating the women uh, above the men. Here's another one. Let me read one more, and then we're going to go on with our partial little. Benot slochad chachmaniyot hen, darshaniyot hen, tidkaniyot hen. The daughters of slochad were wise, 
were interpreters of the law and were righteous, tzaddik. Hem chachmaniot, hen shelifnei sha'ah, dvaro d'amar rabbi shmuel bar rav yitzchak, melamed sheya moshe rabbeinu yoshev adoresh b'parshat yivumin. Shenemark, yeshvoachim yachtav, this is where it gets long, amrulo im keven anu chashuvin t'na lanu nachala. Keven im lav t'tivam amnam Okay, uh, they, this is a text that shows they were wise because they knew right when to approach Moses. It's in the Midrash, Moses was, was considering the law of marriage and who should marry whom, and uh, that's when they approached. So they chose their timing, saying, give us a landholding, because they knew he was dealing with that aspect of the law. It doesn't say that in the Torah. Tzidkaniyotim, uh, they were righteous because when the law was then handed down, they followed it. And they were darshaniyot. This is so interesting. What's a darshan? Anybody know in, in Hebrew? Darshan is an interpreter of Torah. Who ever said that women were interpreters of Torah in these classical texts? There's another midrash that says that the daughters of Tzlovchad wrote this portion of the Torah. Um, and Moses brought their case before God. The law on this subject escaped him, says Rashi. Um, and, uh, and so this chapter should have been written by Moses, but the daughters of Slovkod merited to have it written by them. What's it mean to have your, to have, that it says that the daughters of Slovkod wrote this part of the Torah? I love this stuff. So, um, what I want to look at briefly here is what happens right after we hear from the daughters of Slovchad. So, look at page 1080. On verse 12. The Eternal One said to Moses, Ascend the Mount of Avarim. Okay, what does Avar mean? Lavor? It means to cross over, to transition, to transit. Ascend up to this mount that is the, that's the height that is the place of transit. Or A et Haaretz, and view the land that I've given to the children of Israel. When you have seen it, you too shall be gathered to your kin, just as your brother Aaron was. This is the next passage after the daughters of Tzlovchad appear, is the passage where Moses is told to go up to the mountain and look into the promised land. You're not going to go there. For in the wilderness of Tzin, when the community was contentious, you disobeyed my command to uphold my sanctity in their sight by means of the water. And those are the waters of Meribat Kadesh in the wilderness of Tzin. Moses spoke to the Eternal, saying, Let Yudhevave, source of the breath of all flesh, appoint someone over the community who shall go out before them and come in before them and who shall take them out and bring them in 
so that the Eternal's community may not be like sheep that have no shepherd. And the Eternal One said to Moses, Take Joshua, take Joshua the son of Nun, Ish Asher Ruachbo, a person who has inspiration, and lay your hand upon him. Have him stand before Elazar the priest and before the whole community and commission him in their sight. Invest him with some of your hood, your authority, your glory, so that the whole Israelite community will obey. And he shall present himself to Elazar the priest, who shall on his behalf seek the decision of the Urim. The Urim are the um, oracle sticks that they the, that they would that they would cast before the Eternal. By such instruction they shall go out, and by such instruction they shall come in, he and all the Israelites, the whole community. Moses did as the Eternal commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole community. He laid his hands upon him and commissioned him as the Eternal had spoken through Moses. So the passage right after the daughters of Tzlovchad is Moses is told to go up to the top of the mountain, look in the promised land. And Moses says, but they need someone to lead them. Say, take Joshua, fill him with your authority and spirit. Um, And going forward, the reason the priest is going to have these things called the Urim is because once they enter the promised land, the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night isn't going to guide them anymore. So this is a whole new paradigm that's being established. So the question arises of why these two passages are contiguous. The daughters of Slavchad coming forward, knowing something that Moses doesn't know. And then Moses, it's time for a transition. A transition. The rabbis consider this a transition. If the Talmud can call women darshaniyot, those who interpret the Torah, then there's some transition from the... Um, and if the cloud by... If Moses is going to be gone. Joshua doesn't speak to God the way Moses spoke to God. They have to communicate with God through, through this oracle that's carried in the high priest's breastplate. So some transition is happening from primary text, sort of as it were, talking directly to God, to interpretation here. It's like now, 40 years have gone by and there's a transit, a transition going on. And the women represent something in this transition. And Joshua represents something in this transition. And Moses is not going to be around forever. A new paradigm is being established. And some of the commentaries say that the new paradigm being established is these women approaching the tent and saying, here's the story, give us a land holding. And, the, and God then says, these women have spoken rightly. They, you know, God, so they're, 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 I see this as some, some passing of authority from Moses to both the faithful women, the feminine principle here, 
of the women, of of that part of Israel that stays faithful to their God, and Joshua, who is um, because he had that, he must have had the divine feminine in him. He and Caleb, because of how they viewed the land, the others didn't. So again, it's not a gender issue, right? And these women are taking their rightful place, saying, "This is important now, and we, we want, want the to land. be recognized." And again, it's not a political kind of sociological thing; it's to recognize this, the divine feminine, which is in charge of certain relational um, things in life. And so it's been fear and, oh, my God, and what are we going to do, and da-da-da. I was thinking maybe it would have been different if they had sent women to the promised land as the spies instead of men. Maybe they would have had a whole different thing. But it's, it, it's a better story if it unfolds the way it's unfolding here. So here we are on the banks of the Jordan Cross from Jericho, and we hear who's going to enter the land. Right? We know that it's Joshua and Caleb, who we spoke about last time, and the women, the daughters of Tzlovchat. Um, I'm fascinated by it. There's, there's, I, you know, I don't, I don't have answers. That's partly why I like to teach with well, you because. Yes, yes. The, the, the fact that they're named. Yeah. Yeah. The it fact that they're named uh, me, makes it significant. But yes, it's all, the Midrash expands that to say the women didn't participate in the golden calf and they didn't go along with the council of the uh, ten scouts. They've hung, with, hung in there with Joshua and Caleb saying, we can do it. Naton titen, give us a land holding. So it's interesting that the book of Numbers is coming to a close with this description of these five women who then actually end the book and Joshua being invested and a transition happening between the primary experience, which is Moses, Mm -hmm. and this now um, ongoing tradition, which is that... uh, Interpretive, isn't that what we're doing now? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Bob. It strikes me that this is a transition, as you say, where no longer will we have a face-to-face with God. Moses spoke directly. That's right. And that changes now. That's right. And uh, doesn't reoccur before or after. That's right. It says at the end of Deuteronomy, I mean, now there's going to be a long interlude before Moses dies. But it occurs on the edge of entering the promise. Right. They are now, what I mean is, they are now on the cusp of, they're on the cusp of the promised land for the rest of the Torah. Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, but very little time elapses there. I'm trying to wrap my imagination around the meaning of this, why they wrote it this way, why the religion developed this way, where you can't have both. You can't have someone talking directly 
to the eternal and also be in the promised land. It's, I, I don't know. Yes, that's right. No, that's right. That's right. Um, it's as if you can't. No, it says at the end of Deuteronomy, and a prophet has never arisen like Moses, who um, uh, spoke to God face to face and mouth to mouth. Except what, well, I don't want to go there, I guess, but what do the Christians do with Jesus? I mean, that's a whole... Whole different reading. Wow. It's a different thing. Whole, whole different yeah. reading. By the way, I'm going to teach a course with, and learn a course, with uh, Reverend Matthew Wright from the Episcopal Church. Our Thursday class in the fall, starting in October, is going to be on Judaism and Christianity and a comparative study. So we're going to meet here. Yeah, it's the A-Frame Church. Our Thursday class topic this fall is going to be Judaism and Christianity uh, with this wonderful reverend that I've been getting to know. So that's going to be really interesting. Yes, yeah, so I've read it. I've read it. Yeah. Please do. That might be appropriate. Yeah. I, I could be dead wrong here. But I'm thinking the other transition, which is which is the elephant in the room, is that they're coming from a, a wilderness into a society. Now, this plays with, with women. If you look at the animal kingdom, where, where, where women are the key role, it's usually a social situation, like the queen bee, for instance. You need to keep everybody doing their thing, taking out the garbage, building the nest, finding the honey, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and, and the woman, but if you look at where the male is dominant, you know, it, it's, more, it's more individual, sort of, we gotta hunt, we gotta fight, and it, you don't have that same social society. So the feminine principle here is about domesticating. Right, right, and that's the transition. Hmm. Mm-hmm. A domicile. Well, what really happens when they enter the land is war. Water. Uh, uh, yes, and we're talking in terms of more archetypally in this okay. in this exchange, um, which is that uh, what is the archetypal feminine? It's the keeper of the hearth, the uh, one who maintains the 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 order and wholeness of the home. Those are that would be a feminine archetype, the indwelling presence. Or, or even working in unison together. I think that's more of a yeah. paradigm. I, I, I think more of, you know, they had this thing about penguins in which the, 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 the female and male work together to save that egg. Right. And they walk over the tundra. Yeah. Well, you know, even birds. I got birds right outside my, and, and, they, and they build a nest. It's quite amazing how the female and the male differently build a nest, and then they, and then they feed, and they, and, they, and they sit on the nest. Absolutely outstanding. But without that unison, it's never going to happen. So now they're coming from the wilderness into this, into whatever you want to call it, a female thing. Or, or I, I see it more as a, as a partnership now. Nice. It's got to be a partnership for that society to survive. Very nice. So that's your transition there. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Doug. But men almost always hunted in packs. If you look back at the science, uh, the hunting, gathering... Mm-hmm was a group endeavor. It was like yes. a gang. Yeah. And that's remained pretty consistent even to modern time. Not in all animals. Well, the lion... No, he's talking about men. Humans. Right, right. Humans, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Stu? With, 
with um, King Saul, didn't Samuel hear from God what you should do? Was what I you know I know it in the you're saying in the in right the Torah, Samuel it, the the Torah makes a distinction between Moses. But there are two other very elevated figures in the books of prophets, Samuel and Elijah, who come close. But the tradition makes clear that no one has the capacity that Moses had to encounter the divine presence with such clarity, as opposed to through 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 a glass darkly that it was through a clear lens. Moses also argues. Mm. I mean, it's a conversation. That's right. It's a con- he converses. And no, and no. So when we study Moses's conversations with God, remember how intimate and parental they are. How they feel like they're happening in the bedroom, you know, while they're trying to figure out what to do with the kids. That's Moses. Nobody, nobody has that kind of relationship with God after Moses. Moses is the one who's able to translate into the Torah that we then spend the rest of our thousands of years interpreting. Moses has God's cell phone number. Yes. (laughs) FaceTime. The other thing is... One of the, oh, okay, the, a little louder, Stu. One of the no, explanations... I know, but he, he jumped in, so... One of the explanations so. that some of the very orthodox people say, why don't the women study only the men, is because the men have all sorts of problems that the women don't. So, they let me speak to, to that. <laughs> one of the main rationalizations you'll hear for why women don't need to be involved in the fulfillment of mitzvot and the uh, study in it is drawing on the midrashic strain that I was quoting you. The women don't need it. They have a less, less uh, uh, um, uh, tortured relationship to the divine where they can just stay connected. And that gets trotted out as the reason why women are not included, that, that men need that all these laws, but the women don't. What's wrong with that argument is, what if a woman wants to follow those yeah, laws? Sure. So it, it fall, sort of falls apart at that point. Yeah. But they use that as their rationale, Midrash. this Midrash extreme that I was quoting. Yes? I think we're taught the familiar teaching as they spent this time in the wilderness becoming a society, becoming a culture, Nicely becoming put. a nation. But what I didn't put together is, in numbers, the key role of the women in this story of, of evolving into a society, which is what uh, he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Something about their readiness to enter the land has to incorporate these named daughters of Tzlovchad who say, give us our land holdings. Something about it is completion. There's some sense of integration, as you were saying, that's taking place here that makes them ready. And at the same time, that integration, this is what Aviva Zornberg was saying in my own words, that same time that integration is happening as Moses 
transitions out, right? So Moses is transitioning out. Some other transition and integration is happening. That's going to, and Joshua is empowered now, that will allow them to cross over. And the word cross is la'avor. So, you know, the word Hebrew, ivri, Abraham the ivri, is Abraham the crosser over. Um, That's one of the meanings of Hebrew, uh, which is very interesting. And avera in Hebrew is a transgression, has a negative connotation. But la'avor just means to cross over, and he says, go up to the heights of Avarim. You see in verse 12 on page 1080, go up to the heights of Avarim. Avarim in the Hebrew, which is, if you read Hebrew, you'll see it on the um, Hebrew column, just under the 12 there, has the root of transition. Um, And then it says, and you shall, up in um, uh, the decision that God brings, in verse 8 on the previous page, ha'avartem et nachalato leveto, and you shall ha'avar, transfer, same word, the property to his daughter. So the word avar is used over and over again here. There's a transition going on, a transit from one state to the next that involves Moses transitioning out All he gets to do is look and watch his children leave the home, right? And they are in a position to transition. What do we say when we cross the Jordan? In Hebrew, it's la'avor, to cross over. So those are the things that are circulating in my mind. Linda? So we often in Torah study take this to a personal level. Please do. Well, there's so many facts, I can't quite do it. Oh, okay. Well, as I was preparing the class today, I knew that I wasn't sure where I was going, except that I wanted to share this all with you, so that's the right question to ask. How would you... Thoughts about Linda's question? What's her question, actually? We usually take this to, this is a map of our spiritual journey. So how would we take all these facts and make them personal? Say it again. She's asking. Yeah. Well, I didn't quite get it. Well, I think there's several levels here. One is, um, one is, you know, the way I see it, you need this integration or partnership with the feminine and female sides to have a community survive. And they're going from a wilderness, and you know, so your own spiritual growth, I would think, is you need to get in touch with that partnership of whatever you consider to be the male end and the female end integrated. So um, I guess the key word, and you know, you know what's, what, what stood out to me in this thing, it says, uh, for the wilderness or when the community was contentious. Yes. So we can't, Good point. We can't have the community contentious. And you just need to find that, I believe, I mean, from my view, is that partnership with the male and female part for your own spiritual growth. That's so the promised land requires integration uh, of, of uh, masculine and feminine aspects of self. Mm-hmm. 
So there's no contention and you get out of the wilderness. That's a nice teaching. And then we also, many of us also like to speak about how uh, also societally, the balancing and integration of the masculine and feminine archetypes is going to be required to restore the proper balance so we can uh, um, create a balanced society, not one that's so out of whack. Um, yes, Susan? Well, also when we're going into, from the wilderness into the promised land in this case, could mean like going from one, one place in our life to some new phase you know, where we feel sort of adrift and like, you know, so being able to draw on our feminine side, all of us, whether we're man or woman, to draw on our more intuitive side uh, is really important when we're going into like a new phase of our life where we feel insecure. So that's... Thank you. Thank you. Shauna? Well, this is, this is personal, being a single woman. But to me, this is empowering. It means that uh, if, you, if you are not partnered in life, you still have the right to evaluate a situation and ask for what you want, mm-hmm. if it's just. Nice takeaway. Very nice. Very nice. You know, there was, in my list of circles, you know, when, the, when uh, Justice Kennedy's um, um, opinion about marriage equality the way he phrased it was about the no one should be condemned to the loneliness of blah blah and then some single friends of mine started writing and saying excuse me (laughs) Um, so yes empowering yeah but he tried (laughs) Uh, no 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 no. I just I I don't need to go there I just I I was thinking about what Shauna said yeah go ahead Susan so for me you know, when, when um, difficulty happens in my life, that seems like I'm in the wilderness. It seems like I'm not getting what I need. It seems like I don't, you know, I've lost that connection to God. Um, and then I have a part of me that Moses represents. So I'm looking at all the characters as a part of me. And what, going through the journey, however long it takes, and then letting go of some of the parts. So letting go of the Moses part and the Aaron part and the Miriam part and what they represented to me in terms of my old patterns and in terms of what used to work. And now here I am almost, it's kind of like a rebirth in a way of something new coming in and me me being anointed through this process to continue and keep living, keep choosing life. And it's a tough journey. And so I find myself in the wilderness over and over again. And having this as a kind of a metaphor for it helps me remember that this too shall pass and that I can find what I need based on what was given me before to keep trying to enter the promised land. I mean, I guess I eventually get in there, don't I? Uh, The promised land is where? And what does that actually mean? I mean, it's... Yeah, because it needs different things based right, it's on... Either, it's either the eternal now, or, and, it's the goal we set for ourselves at the yeah, same time. Yeah, but it, it keeps going. It's like each moment is different. It keeps going. There's no static, I get there, and end of story. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> you visit. Right. 
<laughs> and I don't live happily ever after. Or maybe well, I do. do. But you Sometimes. Live. But I and yeah. I live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's choosing life to me. Being a skeptic, I, I hope that it's not bait and switch. <laughs> Who's doing the bait and switch? <laughs> Myself. You know. Oh. <laughs> In goal setting, right? Right. Mm -hmm. But we're often going into the unknown, you know, like we're some. Always. So, right. <laughs> um, it, I'm thinking about um, what I'm thinking about is the empowerment of these ordinary folks. Bye, Bob. Be well. Thank you. Um, the empowerment of these ordinary people. They're they're not the they're not the chieftains. They're not the priests. They're not Moses. They're not even men. Uh, to step forward, um, to approach and stand and say, give me. It's also the journey from slavery to freedom. I mean, all the gender stuff aside. Right. Well, I think because women are, I think the fact that it's women makes it even more powerful to me mm -hmm. than it's these. The, the women are desperate. So if you're asking what my takeaway is, there's something, there's something really audacious and um, uh, important about these women at this moment of transition. Moses is not going to be around forever. Who's stepping up? And they do. Yes, Shana? It feels to me almost like a Supreme Court decision. <laughs> you know, it, I yeah, think it, it is a political precedent that yeah. women are recognizable entities yeah. in the eyes of the law. And that's important. I, you know, I don't know how consistently it's carried forward, but it's a pretty strong statement. Well, because the, because the Torah, again, doesn't organize laws about women in any particular way, then when there is a law about women, it's making a point. Yep. Not necessarily a... Um, you a can't law. It, it's more... Not necessarily a law, but a point. But yes. Look at this. But Look at this. not a precedent of sorts? Yeah, it is a precedent. And so going into this new land and setting up the new incarnation of the Jewish people, there's a precedent. Pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Rob? And for me, as audacious as the women were to ask, I mean, God's response is pretty audacious too, given where how he's responded in the past right. with sort of fire and ice, and now he's sort of saying, yep, good, I like it. And so there's an evolution that's going on in oh. with Oh, mm-hmm. Just as the people are evolving and God. moving to a, a, a more just, higher place, so is God. And, and, you know, God's able to recognize their just request, even though they're women, even though they have no status, even though they're not learned. There's still this evolution, <coughs> what Shauna was saying, to the, the next place. And it's, it's just like it's a partnership with male and female, it's also a partnership between, you know, people and God, and, and the whole thing is evolving to a higher level. That's beautifully put because of God's response, which is so enthusiastic. Yeah. So if we're going to second, so if we're going to tell a story, tell that story, it's almost as though God is saying, "Yes, right. you Finally. you graduated. <laughs> Give me a land holding." When have the slaves ever said that? Right. Ever. Only when Caleb and Joshua came back and said, that's ours, we can do this. 
This is the only other time. And God finally has... Uh, yes, go, you go, kids. Mm. Moses, it's time for you to climb the mountain, take a look, they're ready. And they're not the leaders who are... Who, who mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, because that's the next passage. That says a lot to me. It's a principle of democracy. Uh, right. There's even a proto-democracy in here of the people being empowered. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so the evolution of what the people who wrote the Torah of thinking of God. So there's evolution going. I was thinking that in, our, in, in the past century, we've made tremendous movements, certainly in this country, in terms of African Americans, women, one way to go yet. But one thing that really has happened is things that require a huge amount of strength has been supplanted by machinery. So the the concept of the man with all the muscles and the woman who is typically, I assume, less strong in as general physically it's fair that's fair that suddenly my daughter hates that and and now they're also trying to say well this woman in the marines has to carry 160 pounds and they're finding that's well maybe too much for the average woman there may be women who could do it but there has been this change and also when i grew up in the 30s and 40s the men's role in the house was so different from what it is when our son was growing up. He does cooking, he does other things, and it was just not in my family. It may have been in other people, but it's been a real transition. We see in the big part of the rest of the world, it still has to get there. But certainly in our society, there's been very positive changes. So the feminist movement is part of that. It's a wonderful movement. And, and some of it has wonderful things like Judaism never worried about sex like some of the Orthodox Christianity did. If you didn't, if your husband did not sleep with you, that was on Shabbat. That's grounds for divorce. It's in the Talmud? Uh, it's in the Ketubah. Yeah, it's in the Talmud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has to, he has to. Conjugal responsibilities. Change. <laughs> Does God ever comment on anything else having to do with women ever in the Torah besides here uh, with case law like this uh, yeah, well, yeah with saying you know saying to Moses yes they did what pray. what I want to look up which I didn't before class was when does God say to someone someone says can just this strong like yeah, yes strong, yeah. strong yeah, established um, I'm gonna look that up because I think this is I think there's something about this passage that's extraordinary and that there's therefore at the end of the book of Numbers. Uh, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm dancing around. Y- your question's good. People gave interesting answers, didn't they, Shauna? Um, another question. Is there a place in the Torah where um, women who have brothers still have rights? I'm sitting here. I have a son and a daughter, and my daughter would never let this get passed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh huh. In the Torah, um, uh, well, the interesting not not legal rights, but clearly human consideration in the Torah. For example, when Rebecca, when Abraham's servant um, uh, Eliezer comes and uh, meets Rebecca at the well, then they go back to the house and. 
Rebecca's uncle and father say, we, uh, he says, I want to bring Rebecca back. Well, we'll ask her if she will go. And Rebecca says, yes. So, you know, that's an interesting uh, moment there. Um, that goes way back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in general, and the women are also, and this is an important part of the whole women in Torah conversation, are also very much aid, have a lot of agency in the Torah, even if they're not the protagonists or the central the or, or the uh, the um, heads of the household, right? So when you study Genesis and you see how often Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or Leah are driving the narrative. Um, and then when you get to the beginning of Exodus and you discover that the midwives and the daughter of Pharaoh and Miriam are driving the narrative. It's very interesting. But in terms of legal standing, no. The brother would always inherit before the girl. I would like to just point out that when, they, when this was being written, they didn't think, oh, well, we're in a patriarchy. No, it never even occurred to them. No, they it just, had no idea. It was just what was. It was and, the social order. Right. That's and, why they're also slaves well, in the we Torah. Didn't use the word patriarchy in 1940. Right. I'm just saying that. But my wait. The second part of my point is that we would be foolish to think that we're not making just as big mistakes as we can easily see that they are making in terms of society. Right. Right. That's why I call what we're doing an experiment. We're in the midst of a social experiment. Uh, I don't know how it's going to play out, but based on the principles of, of democracy and uh, uh, that I was raised on, I want the social experiment is what if everybody has equal access to all, all uh, resources and roles in our society? Let's see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> That's what, sort of what you're saying too, right? Right. A lot of the things that everybody in this room might agree is is good progress. You know, 100 years from now, people might say, God, were they stupid? Yeah. Well, we probably were. Well, we but, were. Um, <laughs> we still are. Uh, yeah. So what I like, the way I like to approach, the way I like to approach that is by acknowledging the, to the best of my ability, the rules of the game that I'm playing so that I know what the game is that I'm playing. You know, here are my principles. Here's, here are the rules. Here's the game I'm playing. Let's play it for a while and see how it goes. And then maybe we'll change the rules. Uh, that's kind of... Speaking of stupidity, yeah. finally taking the flag down. Uh, yes. Yes, yes. The State House uh, voted uh, with an un-veto-proof uh, majority. I think it's, it, it must have happened because it was a state senator who was murdered by, a, you know, Clemente Pingley was a state senator. I think that that yeah. pushed it too close to home. Yeah, yeah. Laura? So I haven't really fully formed these thoughts. Okay, shh. about what it means, what it means for the people in the wilderness. In I mean, the wilderness is a little like, louder. What it means for the people in the wilderness? It's a time of contention. Uh, but it's also a time of being taken care of. Yes. Yeah. You know, they're not doing nothing for themselves except causing trouble.
strong. Right. <laughs> the life in the promised land. Yes. It's a very different. Nobody's going to take care of you. Nope. They are about to enter into a giant struggle. So then it made me think of Cain and Abel. And I'm not. See, this is where I haven't really thought this through. Yeah. In terms of. Um, so you're flawed. You've done some stupid things. But the challenge is you go forward and now you have to make it up for yourself. Nobody's going to be bringing you water and manna and leading you around in circles. <laughs> right. So it's sort of similar to what God says to Cain, you know, when Cain says, well, what do I do now? You know, you go and you live. You go and you live. Right, which is what happens on the verge of the crossing over also, I think. I mean, That's I, great. I, like I said, it's, get, really it's getting there, Laura. It's good. It's good. In fact, I just noticed that in the very last verse, on page 1128, it says, Ele These are the commandments and the laws that yod he commanded biyad Moshe via Moses, El Bnei Yisrael, to the children of Israel, Be'arvot Mo'av. Now, if you look at the word, it's the route to cross over again. At the transition place, transition point of Moab on the Jordan near Jericho. So, Arvot is usually translated as steps, S-T-E-P-P-E-S, which I still don't know what steps are. It's like a, pl- a plane. Sort of means? It's usually going up to the mountain. Up to the way to go up the mountain and grow stuff. Well, here, the Hebrew word... The steps are before the mountains. It's what's... Okay. The ground goes up. Well, here, in Hebrew, it's called arvot, which means... Transition place. They're in a transitional place. They're in a liminal place. A step is a level area. It's like you start going up, and then it levels off. Okay. So they are looking at the Jordan... A postscript to the section. You mean that comment on the steps? Yeah, does, does that explain? No, but that's okay. Because what I'm playing with is the number of times the root, ayin resh bet, has been used here, which means to, to transit or to cross over or to transition. So uh, at this transition moment, these are the laws. Moses has gone up to the mountaintop. The daughters of Tzlovchad, God has said, yes, they speak well. And they're ready to leave, uh, leave the, the, the kindergarten, kindergarten, leave their parents' house, and go into what's going to be a. a, a yeah. They have to attain and achieve something. It's not going to be easy. But it also says they're going in with commandments and regulations. Yes. That's interesting. It's important. There are rules to the game. We've tried to give them to you kids. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. go fight. Everything I needed to learn. <laughs> I learned in kindergarten. Yes, do you remember that? Yeah. W- okay, thank you very much. Hey, oh, oh, yes, if Diane. If anybody would like to stay in another minute or two, I wrote something uh, for my Passover Seder. Uh, well, actually, I found ancient documents, Pharaoh's Diary. Hmm. That I translated. Diane, do you want to read it next week, when as part of class? I can read it now if people want to stay. It's 
or or next week. Read it next week. So Read it next week, and we'll all we have our attention to listen. Okay. But some people have to go. Okay. Next week, class. Is that the last class? We have two more. Two more. Thanks, everybody. We have two more classes, and then. And then